Hey there, I want to invite you to join me for the Strategic Summer Workshop, which is taking place on Thursday, May 30th at 1130 Eastern. You can go to schoolsofexcellence.com slash summer to sign up. In this workshop, I'm going to walk you through how to identify simple solutions and systems that will make a massive difference and ripple effect inside of your center. I'm going to help you create efficiency where you need it most and understand what is causing your school to feel so hectic and where those big pain points are. We're going to clarify your center's priority system to improve this summer. I'm going to show you how to audit those systems. We're going to define your desired outcomes, and you're going to leave the workshop with a simple plan that will make huge impact. And by simple, I mean very simple. No complex, no multi-step processes. Super, super simple. No one has time for long things. No one has brain capacity for extra stuff. We need simple things that have massive impact. Go to schoolsofexcellence.com slash summer, and I'll see you there. Welcome to the Schools of Excellence podcast, where we have conversations about education, leadership, and building a school of excellence. The goal on this show is to bring you clarity, up-level your mindset, and give you practical strategies and inspiration so you can show up with confidence and trust your decision-making. I'm Khani Wolshansky. I'm a mom of four under 10, a former New Yorker, and been in the early childhood field my entire life. And I'm so grateful that you've joined me for this conversation. Hey there, and welcome back to the podcast. Today, I'm having an important conversation with Dr. Sherry Walling about her new book, Touching Two Worlds. Dr. Walling is a clinical psychologist, speaker, podcaster, author, and mental health advocate. Her company, Zen Founder, helps entrepreneurs and leaders navigate transition, rapid growth, loss, conflict, and any manner of complex human experience. She's the host of the Zen Founder podcast and is also the host of Mind Curious, a podcast exploring innovations in mental health via psychedelics. Her best-selling book, The Entrepreneurial's Guide to Keeping Your Shit Together, combines the insight of warmth of a therapist with the truth-telling mirth of someone who has been there. And today's conversation is about her newest book, Touching Two Worlds, exploring new strategies for finding wholeness in the aftermath of loss. Sherry and her husband, Rob, reside in Minneapolis, where they spend their time driving their children to music lessons. She's also been known to be to occasionally perform as a circus aerialist. My conversation with Sherry is both deeply moving and also very insightful. I ask her a lot of different questions about how to navigate grief and loss as a school leader. We dive into some really tactical strategy and also rituals that leaders can do when they're navigating both the physical loss of staff or families, and also just loss of something that we thought should be or that we thought would happen. Sherry really dives in our conversation. We really uncover the meaning of rituals within grief and also how to become more self-aware and give ourselves permission and grace in these difficult moments. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Sherry Walling. So Touching Two Worlds, A Guide for Finding Hope in the Landscape of Loss. 
I want to start today's conversation in sharing that when I read this book, I was actually sitting in a window seat with my earbuds on, with my hoodie on as well. Um, and I was flying cross country and I read this, I was reading this book on both ways back and forth. There's rich dialogue and conversation in here, as well as the way that you use metaphors and imagery to explain what's going on really kind of jolted me in my seat a few times, also made me cry. Like it's just written really, really well. So thank you for such a, just a great piece of work and art. Yeah. I thank you for saying that. It It's interesting to be somebody who loves to write and writes a lot, but then now has written something that is so personal that's now out in the world for other people to read and react to. So it it feels um, like a, a book that is a lot of me. You know, there's a lot of myself in that book, and I'm I'm proud of it, and I'm I'm grateful for the opportunity to share it. Um, and still getting used to what it feels like for other people to know, you know, this part of my story and my life. Yeah. So I, I want to start off with why, why did you write this book? Why now? And, and why did you write this book? So I, the background of the book uh, is that I just went through these series of losses in my own personal life. And one of the ways that I was working through those experiences as they were happening was to write. So my dad was diagnosed with esophageal cancer in, I guess, January of 2017. And almost right at the beginning of his journey with cancer, I started to write about what we were experiencing as a family, what I was experiencing as a daughter. And it it was really for me. I didn't intend to write a book, to be honest. It doesn't really fit with my business plan or my business model or these other things that I would normally give my time and energy to. But as I was writing and going through life, I kept interacting with people who were experiencing their own losses. And I would feel like, oh, I, I want to send you this paragraph or this thought that I had that might be helpful. So I started sending bits and chunks of the book to friends and clients and family members over time. And it became clear to me that I had something that I did want to share. And of course, with the kind of collective experience of grief that many of us have confronted or all of us have confronted in the context of the pandemic, it felt like probably a good time to start to share those sort of thoughts and experiences. There's so many like one to two liners in the book that I highlighted and and then wrote down again. But one of the things that you start off with is death rewrites everything. And it also rewrites the story of the living. And one of the things you write after that is you talk about how honoring all that you've walked through and voicing it out loud is really a part of the healing journey. And I often hear leaders talk about, I'm afraid to speak out loud what I'm carrying. I'm afraid to speak it out into the world or even into a confidant. I worry that it's going to consume me and I will fall apart. Mm. And so I'd love if you can share just in that context of like, it rewrites everything, but also in voicing and honoring everything that we walk through. What, what is the balance between speaking it out it's not from a place that it's going to consume you and you'll fall into a million pieces, but also honoring like we need to speak, we need to share our story. Yeah. I think our stories hold danger for us 
when we try to repress them, right? Mm -hmm. When we hold big, emotionally laden, powerful parts of ourselves and try to like shove it in the trunk in the back of our brains and say, that's not happening. That's, you know, we don't talk about Bruno, like that's not there. When we are actively interacting with what's happening to us, like we're reflecting, we are feeling, we're present to the ups and downs of our own life. I think that means that naturally we just kind of share it here and there, that our teams, our employees, our staff may know, oh, Hani's experiencing a loss or has a family member that's ill. We do ourselves a disservice when we believe that we will be overwhelmed or will overwhelm other people. I think, especially those of us who are thoughtful leaders, we can trust ourselves to share appropriately in small doses. Oh, I spent the weekend with my mom in the hospital. It was a little bit rough, but man, I'm I'm glad to be back at work today thinking about something else. That's mm-hmm. a totally appropriate thing for a leader to say. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That's honest and authentic, but doesn't sort of go down the spiral of, I need help, take care of me. I'm not okay. I'm dysregulated. I'm disrupted. Things are terrible. That's usually not the lived experience for us. Why are we so worried to burden others with our story? Like when, when someone is going through a grief or a loss, there is a lot of secrecy around, I don't want other people to know what I'm going through. I don't want people to feel bad for me. I don't want people to feel like they need to take care of me. And so, especially in positions of leadership, the leader gets quiet. But again, we know there, there are no secrets. Everyone ends up finding everything out. But we're, I'm curious if we can explore the root of why are we afraid to share with others? Oh, that's, it's such a good question. I I think there's probably lots of reasons. Oh, sure. But especially as leaders, maybe especially as women, we really view our role to be in service to others. And of course, not everybody that's listening is female, but there's this sort of trend in Mm -hmm. those of Mm -hmm. us who run a school or who sort of take care of other people for a living, that that's our role and we're uncomfortable stepping outside of that. But it's it's kind of a fiction, right? It, it makes us less human. It makes us really miss opportunities to receive the gifts and the goodness of other people by just letting them be helpful. So I, th- I think it it's probably a pretty complicated cause, but I, I would argue it's one that just doesn't serve us very well. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it brings me to to my next thing here. You, one of the, um, I'm going to read a lot from the book because I think there's there's so much to share from there. But one of the things you write is grief has landmines in my grief has left landmines in my psyche, and I don't know when or how they'll get activated. And I, when I sat with this statement, I I was thinking about this can either give someone this can give someone a lot of clarity of like, oh, so that's why this is so hard. Or so this is why this is challenging. But I find that it also can give this sense of uncertainty of like, what is going to trigger me next? When mm-hmm. when am I going to have this hard moment? Is it going to be in a moment when I'm standing in front of all the parents or in a difficult conversation? Like what, what might activate this? So I'd love if you could speak to that. Yeah, I... I have worked with this so much with my own clients. And then of course, within my own self, this sense that 
there are these spaces now that if they get tapped on, (laughs) there's the potential for some emotion. That's usually the worst of it. Usually it's getting teary or feeling upset. Mm -hmm. It's not like people have panic attacks as a result of grief. Um, not, not usually sometimes, but that's a little Mm -hmm. bit of a a different story. So this happened to me quite recently, actually. So my son is 15. He has a a learning permit and I am the designated driving teacher or I'm teaching him to drive. And, uh, my dad taught me to drive. And so I remembered the first time I went driving with my dad, I confused the brake and the gas as one does the first time they drive a car. And I sent our, I was driving in the car and we just went like zooming into this yard. It was fine. We didn't hit anything. We were fine, but it was definitely this like moment. And my dad was very like calm about it. uncharacteristically calm. Um, And so as I'm teaching my son, he had this one moment where he made the same mistake. We were in a parking lot. It was fine. Not a big deal. But I just like, longed for my dad in that moment. Like, mm. like, oh, that was so good that he taught me to do this. Like, I miss him being around and he would get such a kick out of watching my son in this role. And it, it, I kind of got teary. I got a little soft and I just had to say to my kiddo, who obviously knows this story, he's been in it too. I just had to say to my son, like, oh, it, it reminds me of when my dad taught me. And it kind of makes me like sad for this moment. And I said it out loud and we moved on. So the value in knowing that you have some landmines is, I think, primarily so that you can be compassionate with yourself when you get that moment of softness or tearfulness. And you can be a little bit practiced at how to handle it. It's when you don't acknowledge it that you don't prepare. (laughs) And it's never happened to me in front of a group of people or parents or something like that. It certainly could. And I think if if it did, I would probably just say something very similar to what I said to my kid. Like, oh, seeing this wonderful classroom of kids reminds me of my mother when they, you know, and, and I would just take the moment, say something and move on. And that's usually all that the grief is asking of you is to honor the memory and then move on with your day. I think just hearing you say, when we acknowledge those spaces, those like landmines inside of us, um, we can learn how to respond to them. So when these moments happen, we're not, it's not this off guard moment. It's not this intense trigger. It's like, oh, that's, you know, this is bringing up a memory for me, or this is, and, and hearing you say, you know, that's, that's what grief is asking from you in that moment. Um, Again, just using those words really shifts the dialogue in our own mind, and then also shifts the conversation that we might be having with another person. Yeah, I think some of grief is scarier in our minds than in real life. That fear that you alluded to earlier, that if we open ourselves to it, we'll fall down the well of grief and never to be heard from again. And I I think one of the reasons that I really wanted to write this book is that so many of us are grieving in a variety of ways. And so let's be a little bit more competent or feel better mastery of the grief process so that we won't fear it so much. When you say, you know, we're all grieving, you know, in in different ways. I find that, I find that an important lead to a a conversation around 
sometimes we box grief into she's allowed to grieve because she lost her dad or she's allowed to be sad because she lost her child or um, we kind of create this hierarchy of grief when meanwhile grief could be for so many different things. It's, it's, it's all these different emotions, all this different loss. Can you, I'm, I'm curious about how we can help redefine grief in our minds so we don't look at it from this black and white approach or this hierarchy. Yeah, I think very simply, grief is the emotional reaction that follows loss. And loss includes all manner of losses. Mm. The loss of plans, the loss of a business, the loss of a sense of safety that follows, you know, a car accident or a traumatic experience the loss of a person, the loss of a marriage, the loss of any kind of relationship, a friendship that you can't connect with anymore. Sometimes those are really painful losses that we don't have grief language for in our common vernacular. One of the things that I work a lot with right now is helping business owners through transitions. And sometimes those are the sale of a business and it's like a huge success financially or from other people's perspective, but it accompany, it's accompanied with a great deal of loss that people don't know how to talk about. As leaders, you know, again, you know, you have a lot of training, a lot of history, your work, you know, you help and coach people through this process. For someone who is a school leader who's listening to this and thinking, how can I invite some of this conversation, whether I'm in one-on-ones with teachers who come and share some really hard stories with me or at staff meetings where we can create some more common language in the way that not just I interact with my team, but the team interacts with each other as a micro community. Uh, Because that's what a school really is. It really is this micro community of people connecting and building relationships with each other. I really love community conversations around highs and lows. So those can be professional highs. They can be personal highs, professional lows, personal lows. I think those, that simple kind of framing of conversations, which I'm sure you and your team and many school leaders do already, but let the, let the lows create space to name our grief. So an example of a low could be what's something you've recently lost that mattered to you. So just the naming of grief, I think, is really important. And it's extra important when a community experiences a grief together. So the loss of a colleague, certainly something like COVID, even sometimes the loss of a student, maybe not by death, but just by moving away or, you know, something that the community used to hold that they no longer hold. And so having processes in a school, especially where we welcome new folk and send off people who are leaving really well can help with that grieving process. I'm I'm curious if you can give us even some some language. This this has happened very often where a teacher who's been there for a very long time now moves on, you know, to go be some, to go where someone else or a longstanding family in the school <clears throat> moves away. And, you know, and now they're no longer part. 
I find the leader really grappling with um, creating a space for grief for the team. But again, going back to my original note of like not letting it be all consuming. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there's this little bit of this, like either we're going to grieve it and get all consumed by it, or we're going to lock it up in the box and move on. Um, Where, where do we invite that middle ground? I think the middle ground really happens in ritual. Um, which maybe is a scary word, but it happens in process, process. But maybe, maybe a school decides that when a teacher leaves, everyone signs a card and they make a really beautiful frame and they include some lovely photos and they send them off with that gift. Or maybe another school decides like, we're going to send each of our teachers off with a trophy, a silly trophy that says, you know, your time served. And there's a process. Maybe it's a cake, maybe it's a party, but there's some kind of collective acknowledgement that a transition is happening. And it doesn't always have to be sad, right? Sometimes it can be very joyful, but it's in the it's in the ritualizing. It's in the, here's, we all sign the card. We all write a little entry in the book. We all give a small gift. We all do something together to honor that the presence will no longer be with us. This is so insightful because I, I find, I find, you know, the holidays are always full of these different rituals as a family, right? Whether, whatever holidays you celebrate, I, I find that as a family, every family kind of creates their own little rituals around whichever holidays are meaningful and for them. And one of the reasons why why rituals are so meaningful to us is they create this sense of like peace and like connection and like this is what we always do and this is what brings us together and this is what makes us happy. And so I I really appreciate this insight into creating a ritual around how do we say goodbye here? How do we acknowledge the loss? Um, Because there is peace that comes with that ritual. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I know that different traditions do this better or worse than others. (laughs) And some traditions have really structured rituals and like sitting Shiva, like that, that is such a beautiful practice. And my tradition has the ritual of like, we're going to bring you a casserole for your freezer. And that's, that's also lovely. I, you know, I'm not a huge casserole fan, but yes, it's, yes. it's nice to have food. <laughs> yes, yeah. Oh, for sure. Food is very important during that period. Yes. But those scripts yeah. show us how to show up and care for each other. And they also have some parameters around how you show up and care. And I mentioned that to just speak to that concern of like, we're going to fall down the well of grief. Mm-hmm. So we can acknowledge and honor and do and act in ways that don't have to be terribly overwhelming, but also are really important. One of the things you write in the in your book is a story when you were listening to a friend of yours share their own cancer journey and their journey with chemo, and you needed to leave the table. And then you write, I hope that time and healing will help me stay at the table and remain attentive. Never before has it felt so dangerous inside of me. Mm. I want to take that a layer deeper, if, if we can, where there, the last two years have really brought 
a lot of intense grief into our schools, both from physically losing loved ones to the loss of financial loss and loss of of just so many different things, specifically in our educational Mm -hmm. infrastructure that we're still fighting for and, and really need in our educational system. And then this piece of, it feels dangerous inside of me. It feels scary inside of me. But then also the longing of wanting to be at the table, wanting to be present. I want to start with how do we redefine what it means to be present? Um, I think sometimes we create these very general definitions of they need to be more present in the classroom. I want them to be more present with the children. But yet when we're grappling with this grief and loss, what does it look like to be present? I shared a lot here. So No, it's it's such a beautiful question. But I think the the way that I define presence or the way that I am most aware of mm-hmm. presence is in listening. And that's probably a skewed definition because of my work. <laughs> but, <laughs> but when I'm really present, I'm only thinking about or attending to that person or situation that I'm in. Mm-hmm. I'm not anywhere else. And I think that's what felt so uncomfortable for me in this story that I shared in the book of needing to leave the table is I I just could not listen to this person's story about their own experience with cancer. It's not that I didn't care. It's not that I needed to check Facebook. I just, I felt like my my um, my vessel for holding painful stories about cancer was full and anything else that was going to land on top of it was just going to like fall off on the floor. Like I just couldn't absorb it. So I think presence is being able to hold it. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, can we use that analogy for a second? I think that's a, a great analogy of my my vessel for listening to those stories was full. And so I couldn't, really listen. And it's not that I didn't care. And it's not that I didn't want to, I didn't have the capacity to listen. Yeah. Going back to some of the rituals or practices, right. As, as a, when, when we're a leader of people who are navigating this journey of grief, of loss, million dollar question, right. How do we continue to ensure that we are a vessel for listening without incurring, you know, what you called compassion fatigue. When you and I spoke in the very early stages of the pandemic, we, we had a conversation um, and that really resonated again with so much of the audience around, wow, that's what I'm experiencing. It's, it's compassion fatigue, but yes, your, your vessel was full because of everything that was going on, but we always have things going on. There's always yeah. stuff happening. What's that tightrope that we're walking on? I actually think that's where ritual is really important because it's an intentional opening of the space that's then held collectively. So if I had known that I was going to hear a cancer story at lunch, I may have prepared myself differently. Or if I was going into a consulting or clinical context, I prepare myself differently. But I, I feel like the framing of what we're holding and when we're opening ourselves up to be a listener is really important. 
because I thought I was there for the guacamole. Like I just wasn't, I just wasn't ready (laughs) to be soulfully listening. And as leaders, I think being able to have like a really good read on what our emotional capacity is at a given time is really important because there are, there are times in our day when it's not wise for us to sign up to be the listener. It's not wise for us to say yes to the employee who wants to talk to us. We need to say, you know, let's touch base after school or let's touch base tomorrow morning. I'll be fresh then and I'll give you my full attention. So being, first of all, really wise about discerning where we are Mm -hmm. and then setting parameters that invite true listening when we can say yes and then saying no when we can't really go there. I think it's important individually. And then once again, the sense of ritual and collective expression is really helpful because it doesn't mean that we carry it by ourselves. We carry it together in a space where we have opened and closed the conversation. You speak about being discerning of, am I in a place where I can listen? Am I in a place where I can fully be present? For someone who's might be on in early in their self-awareness journey, maybe they're not um, fully cognizant yet of their kind of red flags or what happens inside of their body when they're not ready to listen. What should one start looking for, right? They someone might be listening, like, but I don't know when when I'm ready. I always feel not ready. I always feel like I can't mm-hmm. listen, which isn't true. Yeah, yeah. I think one thing to think about is simply understanding how much exposure to loss you're currently holding and knowing that that will affect your capacity to some extent. So if you've, you know, if you've loved someone who is currently in the midst of a cancer struggle or an addiction struggle or a mental health problem, your capacity is already given toward that story. A certain percent of yourself is committed. And so that just leaves less room. Yeah. Yeah, I like that as a first step, just acknowledging what you're currently carrying already. You have a title, one of the chapters in the book is, this is not what I ordered. And you write about, you know, the should haves, the shouldn't, this this wasn't supposed to happen, this shouldn't have happened, this wasn't supposed to take place, um, you know, to, to bring in a context of the schools. I do all the right things. Why is this happening to me? Why am I still struggling with this? Um, how do we get out of this viral loop in our heads where we get stuck in the, the should haves and the shouldn't haves? I think for me, the lesson of this story in my life is, yeah, I mean, unfortunately, just to sort of slam my head up against the wall of the limits of my own control. And I wish that was an easier lesson for me and for others to learn or to sit with. I wish I felt more comfortable with it. I wish my clients felt more comfortable with it. But um, when unexpected disruption happens in your life, you you learn a little bit about how to be fluid and just roll with what's happening and find whatever kind of tendrils of connection or joy are possible for you in that situation. And I think for leaders who are 
similarly feeling like they're kind of rolling up and down on the waves without maybe much navigational guidance to know that that is frankly quite normal. It's much more a part of the journey of our lives and our businesses than we would like to admit, but it is still true. And it may not be a product of you having done anything wrong. I didn't do anything wrong for my dad to get cancer. He didn't either. I mean, yeah. and that's a, that's a tough reality to live with, but it is easier, I think, than the other alternative, which is that I'm not good enough. I have to be better. I have to do better. I have to try harder to bring about a different outcome. You write, don't surrender too soon. Don't fight too long. Trust your instincts about when it's time to let go. And I remember reading this line as we were kind of uh, tax, like the plane had just landed and we were taxing for a while. And I just stared at this statement for a long time. And I'm like, no, like there's this primal fight to want me to want to fight for our survival, to want to fight for our life. And I just, I, I sat at this and I'm like, how, how do we know don't surrender too soon. Don't fight too long. Where's this discernment coming from? Because instinctively we want to fight for ourselves um, and for the people that we love. So I, I think when I read this, I'm like, I, I need to talk to you about this. Like what, what, what is this? <laughs> I think some of the question is also in what we're fighting for. So my, my dad fought very hard to stay alive and just did rounds and rounds of chemo and any experimental medicine that any physician would give him. And I, um, I respect that. That was his fight. My fight became his comfort and his peace. And so in some ways, his fight to stay alive was at odds with my fight for him to be comfortable because he was in extraordinary amount of pain toward the end of his life. And by the time he was ready to go into hospice, he died a week later, which many hospice people would say that he he held out too long. Like we could have made him much more comfortable much sooner. And... So there's no perfect line for the moment that he should have given up, but nor is there a perfect line for where um, the struggle moved from staying alive to being comfortable or dying with as much dignity as possible, because that's also a concern. So, you know, as this applies to leadership, when we feel like we're in a fight and it's feels like it's just lingering and we're not sure, like, should I keep fighting this or is it time to let go of this? I think one of the things that's really helpful to try to really get clear about is what we're fighting for and why it's important. How do we start to get, because a lot of times we're like, well, I'm fighting for this, but there's really something underneath it, right? Or why are we fighting for this? Well, I want the business to stay open or I want, you know, everyone to get paid or I want what, whatever, whatever it is. And then when you dig a layer deeper, it's actually none of those things. Mm -hmm. And so, again, digging a layer deeper usually happens, you know, alongside wise counsel, whether you're working with a counselor, a therapist, or, you know, a trusted friend, it's it's kind of hard to do this work alone. Um, And so I'm curious for people that are, are listening and maybe don't have access to a mental health professional or whatever it is, how... 
what are some discerning questions that they can ask themselves? Because I feel like anyone that's listening is is fighting some sort of battle right now. Sure. So it's a really irritating question, but it works. Okay. And the, and the question is very simple. It's why. And you follow the why train all the way until it doesn't go any further. So I want to retain this teacher. Why? They're wonderful in the classroom. Why is that important? They, you know, students stay for them. They request this teacher. They really love this teacher. Why? You know, you you kind of follow the train until it reaches this point where you don't have any more answers and don't have any more questions, or you get to this sort of deep place within yourself where usually you recognize that there's something about you that's entering this story. I will feel let down if this person moves on to another role. I will feel left behind. Usually it's some sort of deep, juicy, like child-ish or childlike, childhood-related kind of hurt that comes to the surface. But using that why question to just kind of keep at it over and over till you come to a new understanding of what your motivation is, I think can help reveal some of those more intricate motivations for the battles that we choose and the ones that we don't. I have two more questions for you. When we're listening to people's stories, because again, educational leadership is so much about listening to stories from all levels of leadership. I find that in this season, when leaders open themselves up to listen, our employees and our teams are so hungry for a connection and for a place to navigate their struggles both mental health struggles and just life struggles that when you create the invitation, it's like, yes. And now I need to talk to you about all of these things. Mm -hmm. And leaders have used words like, I feel hijacked. I feel like I'm, I'm trapped in this conversation and it's not what I signed up for. I, I, I didn't open myself up for all of this as a mental health professional. How can you guide the leaders to create some of those boundaries or some of that space while also not coming across as like, I don't want to talk to you. Yeah. (laughs) And I think one of the greatest things that leaders can do are to help make resources accessible and be a very big proponent of accessing those resources. So whether that's something like BetterHelp or Talkspace, I mean, now there are all of these like yeah. Virtual therapy companies and and they seem to be pretty good. You know, there's no reason to think that they're not good options for employees. So helping people on your team understand how to utilize their mental health benefits that go along with their insurance if that's applicable. So real recognizing what the barriers are that make it difficult for people to access the help that they need, whether that's mental health or whether it's just community, it's friendships, it's being part of a a faith community, it's being part of a softball league. Normalizing relational health and promoting it as much as possible. And then also normalizing and promoting access to helpers, whether that's mental health or marital therapy therapy for your kid, those kinds of things, I think is a really important role for a leader because it it doesn't, it's not you holding up the stop sign to say like, stop, don't tell me any more things. It's you giving the green light of, oh, this is really important. Let's, 
let's get you the resource, you know, like go forth and speak to this person because they are really great at helping. How does one gently, I think some people are are coming to the leaders to talk to them, not recognizing that they really do need to speak to a mental health professional Mm -hmm. and it would really be valuable for them. And yet for many people, it's still a very taboo topic. It's still very like, I'm not going to do that. And so I find many leaders struggling with actually creating that invitation of like, you know, I'd love to direct you here because they almost feel like, am I shaming the person? Am I, you know, pathologizing them, go see a doctor. Exactly. Exactly. So do you have some language of how to create that invitation? I honestly, I think the invitation should probably happen before the one-on-one conversation. So Mm -hmm. normalizing for everyone, often out loud as more of a preventative measure, I think is really important. So that's the first layer, right? Have a mental health clinician come and do an in-service for your team at some point. You know, there's there's wonderful local people wherever schools are located. Yes. Just gently drop here and there the value that maybe you've received from therapy or from going to a couple's counselor or Mm -hmm. from taking a personal retreat or a meditation class. Just drop a little like nugget along the way of what you're doing to take care of your own health as a way of modeling for your team what it looks like. And then I think when you're, if you find yourself in that intense one-on-one conversation, kind truth is usually best, which is to say, hey, this feels really heavy. I'm worried about you. I want you to get the support that you need. And I'm worried that, you know, my role as school lead may not be quite enough for what this situation warrants. Can we think together about a couple of other folks that could be helpful here? Maybe your spiritual leader, maybe an aunt or a family member, maybe a clinician, maybe kind of go through the list. So that that's, again, though, we have to be comfortable acknowledging our limits and saying, I care about this and I'm just not the right person. I think those words are so gentle and loving at the same and inviting and loving at the same time. So thank you. My, my last question is, when we think when when i think of grief and when i think of loss it's it's not a project it's not a checkbox of like so i do these three rituals and you know in 90 days i feel better um it's a journey that we walk on for the rest of our lives and 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 navigating it because different seasons will bring in different things we master different skills then other things come up And I find when I work with leaders, because I I talk often about, you know, culture is not a project. Leadership is not a project. These things are your lifelong journey. But I find when we sign up for leadership, it's our choice. We're like, I'm choosing to be a leader. I'm choosing to create a culture. We don't choose grief. We don't choose loss. How, How do we learn to come more at peace with, this is my life's journey, even though I didn't choose it? I've come to see this really deep relationship between grief and love. And in a way, that's the title of the book, Touching Two Worlds. It's the sense of being alive, joyful, in love, 
And also the other, the shadow or inverse of that, of feeling alone, of feeling grief, of feeling sadness. And I don't know that we get the love without the grief. So I think normalizing that the more that we open ourselves to love, love of all kinds, love of your cat, your dog, your your humans, the grief is grief is an inevitable part of all of those relationships. Yeah. Not always by death, but by some manner of hurt or heartbreak. So we do choose it sort of by loving anything, but mm-hmm. it is also yeah. part of us just because of what it means to be human. Yeah. Yeah. Sherry, thank you so much for joining us. Where can people go to find more about your work and where can they get this book, Touching Two Girls? The book is available for pre-order in all of the places. So Amazon, Barnes & Noble, your local bookstore, hopefully. And if you want to learn more about the book or, you know, find more direct links to where you can find it, it's at touchingtwoworlds.com. And if you want to learn more about my work in the world, I'm at sherrywalling.com. Thank you. Thank you for being here with us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. If you are loving the Schools of Excellence podcast and have gotten any value out of it for your school, I would love if you can do two things for me. One, subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode. And two, can you please leave us a review? Reviews help other school leaders know that this is the place to learn how to build a school of excellence. And I would be so grateful if you can do that for us. Your help and support makes this show to be able to be listened by the thousands of other school leaders all around the world. Thanks so much for listening, for giving us your time and attention each and every week. And I appreciate that you have joined us. Hey there, I want to invite you to join me for the Strategic Summer Workshop on Thursday, May 30th at 1130 Eastern. You can click the link in the show notes or go to schoolsofexcellence.com slash summer. In this workshop, I'm going to walk you through how to optimize your already efficient systems or help you tweak some ones that need a little bit more tweaking to help you enter the 2024-2025 school year with ease, with success, and with calmness. Increase your profitability, reduce your expenses, and more than anything, just help you buy back some of your time. I look forward to seeing you there.